Good afternoon, everybody. The 17th of Tammuz, fast day beginning the period of the three weeks, and we are beginning the book of Amos. Amos is, without a doubt, one of my very favorite books of Tanakh as a whole. It combines anger and poetry and beautiful imagery and really sets a model for, I think, one form of politics, of particularly Jewish politics, which I'm excited to begin to learn with people. When did Amos live? In contrast to Yoel, as Ariel spoke about, we have a pretty good idea of when he lived. The verse at the start of the book tells us that Chaza al Yisrael Uziah. He was a prophet over Israel in the days of Uziah and in the days of Yeravoam ben Yoash, Shnataim Lifnei Haraash, two years before the earthquake. We are told of an earthquake which we have archaeological um, remnants of. We are told about the reigns of the kings, Uziah and Yeravoam. This would place Amos in the 760s or the 750s. He is almost a contemporary of Hoshea. He is the first of the Nevi'im Acharonim, it would seem, of the later prophets. And he gives us such an introduction. How does Amos experience God? In the second verse of the chapter, Vayomer, Vayomar, he says, Hashem mitzion yishag, God shall roar forth from Zion. Um Yerushalayim yiten kolo, from Jerusalem, shall give his voice. God shall roar from Zion. In chapter 3, we read of a similar idea. Ariyeh sha'ag, says Amos. A lion has roared. Mi lo yira, who shall not fear? Adonai Hashem diber, the Lord God has spoken. Mi lo who shall not prophesy? Amos, as a Navi, through this metaphor, gives us an insight into his interior, into his experience. He experiences God's voice, not as was given to Eliyahu, kol demama daka, a thin, small, quiet voice, the opposite. It is a roar. It is compared to a lion. Just as a lion roars and people are fearful, so too does Hashem roar and Amos needs to prophesy. This roar is deeply connected to the social conditions of the time. We know that during the first half of the 8th century, when Amos is living, for the first time there began to appear in Israel and in Yehuda an upper class. We see the archaeological structures move from simple, more or less, one-room mud huts to multi-room dwellings. We know that in this period there existed an elite, a, a financial elite. Together with that, Oh, therefore, of course, there existed as well a large class divide, a significant separation stratified along the lines of their means. This is going to be a major theme of Amos. Here is how Abraham Joshua Heschel 
begins his chapter on Amos. He writes as follows. When Amos appeared in the north, there was pride, chapter 6. Plenty and splendor in the land, elegance in the city, and might in the palaces. The rich had their summer and winter palaces adorned with costly ivory, chapter 3, verse 15. Gorgeous couches with damask pillows, chapter 3, verse 12, on which they reclined at their sumptuous feasts. They planted pleasant vineyards, anointed themselves with precious oils, chapter 6 and 5. Their women, compared by Amos to the fat cows of Bashan, were addicted to wine, chapter 4. At the same time, there was no justice in the land. The poor were afflicted, exploited, even sold into slavery, chapter 2 and chapter 5. And the judges were corrupt. It's not surprising, based on that introductory passage from Abraham Joshua Heschel, that the key word of Amos is Ashok, Ain Shin Kuf, meaning a form of abuse, but abuse with a particular financial component. This is going to be one of the major themes of Amos. Let's begin with what he speaks about in chapter 1. Chapter 1 focuses upon the nations. We read of Damascus, we read of Gaza, we read of Edom, of Ammon, and at the beginning of the next chapter of Moab. Each nation is introduced with the following formula. Ko'amar Hashem, thus does God say, al shilosha pishay damesek, for three sins of Damascus, or of any of the other ones, I will forgive. Va'al arba'ah, but for the fourth one, lo ashivenu, I shall not forgive. Three, four. For, verse, for three sins of each one of these nations, God can forgive. For the fourth one, he cannot. What is the fourth one that he cannot forgive for? In each case, it is something somewhat similar. For Damascus, I will not pardon them. For their threshing of Gilad with rods of iron. For the fourth sin of Gaza, I cannot pardon them. For they cast out a total exile by handing refugees over to Edom. When it comes to Tyree, he can forgive three sins, but for the fourth he cannot pardon them. For delivering exile to Edom and not remembering Brit Achim, the pact of brothers. When it comes to Ammon, again he can forgive three sins, but for the fourth he cannot. For their splitting open of pregnant women of Gilad in order to extend their own territory. For three sins he can forgive, for four he cannot. I once heard Professor Yair Zakovich, a great scholar of Tanakh at the Hebrew University, introduce this chapter as follows, saying that Amos starts off speaking about the nations, getting his audience in Israel excited. Everybody loves to hear why the other nations around them are so terrible. Amos is able to position himself almost as a nationalist, a proud patriot, putting down their neighbours. Chapter 2, after Moab, then moves on to Yehuda, who are the real local neighbours. Amos is in the northern kingdom, speaking about their sins. Finally, though, he switches it. He moves to speaking about Yehuda. What is so interesting, though, is that Yehuda, pardon me, is Israel, the northern kingdom in which 
Amos lives is not now critiqued for their violence, their physical violence, as all of the other nations have, but rather for the way in which they structure their society, for disregard of the poor, for reclining upon pawned garments beside every idolatrous altar, drinking the wines of their victims that they have extorted in the temples of their gods. Something very significant can be imparted to us with this. The question that is being raised is what is the difference between the sort of critique that can be levelled against a people we do not know, against a different society? How much can we speak of what is right and what is wrong in a society that is not ours versus how much can we say about what is right and what is wrong in our own society? Michael Waltzer, who is a wonderful professor at Princeton of political philosophy, really one of my heroes, uses this chapter of Amos in a paper of his to describe what he calls thick and thin arguments at home and abroad. In Waltz's telling, there is a sort of argument that we can make about the wider world. We can speak of what is right and what is wrong, what is moral and what is immoral across the world, but it is quite a thin argument. In other words, it is limited to what Amos himself describes. It is violence. Violence in multiple different societies can and should be critiqued even by people who are not members of this, that society. However, there is something called a thick morality which exists within a society which is based upon the history, the traditions, the religious beliefs and practices of a society which constructs a thicker form of morality. And this Amos is able to direct at his own society. He could not speak of other societies for he, in depth because he does not really know them. However, in chapter 2, God Moshe, Amos quotes, speaks in God's name, I took this people out of Egypt. For that reason, because of this relationship, because of what Egypt means, I am able to speak to them in this way. In contrast to Plato and generally the instinct of philosophy to speak in universal terms, the prophets do not speak to every nation. Or if they do, they can only do so in a thin way as Amos does in chapter 1. But what will be the majority of the book is the thick morality that we see in the beginning of chapter 2, that which can be said in particular to a certain nation, urging them to live up to their own values and visions that they have from their history. Wishing everybody a wonderful day.